Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 95, verses 1 through 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they did see, had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here at Metro. Um, I'm going to repeat kind of what Daniel said, but if it's your first time uh, ever stepping inside a church or uh, maybe you kind of grew up in the church and it's your first time in a while. Um, I'm just so glad that you're here um, and that you've taken a, a really big step of faith um, uh, to uh, be here with us you know, as you search, as you doubt, as you question, um, and try to figure out who God is in your life. Um, and I sincerely mean that because I know that the church hasn't always lived up um, to what it says, um, but I do know that God loves his church. Uh, and by that, he loves you uh, and he loves me. And as flawed as the church may be, uh, it is vital to the mission of loving him uh, and loving our neighbors. Um, and so I just want to invite you uh, and welcome you all uh, to our family today. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a place for perfect people. Um, but broken and wounded uh, for the ones who always seem to be making mistakes and failing. You see, that's what makes the church beautiful and strong. It's not a place for those who have lived a perfect life. You won't find much need here. But for those who haven't, the gospel has so much to offer more than you could ever imagine, and more than you could ever dare hope. And Jesus, who is the head of the church, he invites you in today. He wants to spend time with you here and now. So come, let's hear God's word today. We'll be walking through Psalm 95. And when Pastor Donnie first came to our staff with this idea of the pastoral prayers, um, I knew this psalm was the one that I wanted to share with you all today. Uh, it's been and continues to be a personal guide, a comfort, um, an end, a rebuke to my heart um, through my own seasons of guilt, uh, my seasons of shame, um, self-pity, and oftentimes questioning God's goodness in my life.
And if you're not too familiar with the Bible, uh, the book of Psalms is a collection of poems, uh, songs and hymns uh, found in the Old Testament, and there are 150 of them. And this Psalm, Psalm 95 in particular, focuses on worship and provides a framework for worship is, and more specifically, uh, what idolatry is about. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, But before we get into the text, I kind of want to give a definition of what worship uh, is, because I think there's oftentimes a misconception uh, of what worship is. Um, You see, worship is often kind of viewed as an event, and it's, you know, kind of a time and place. We'll say, I went to worship today, or um, worship was great today, uh, and maybe sometimes not so great, right? Um, But you see, uh, while we might make worship a noun, it's so much more, so much more than that. Um, If you haven't had a chance yet to uh, follow along our service in the bulletin, um, and if you don't know, we do have a bulletin, it's available online digitally. I highly recommend doing so, Um, and I kind of just want to point all of us right now today, um, we spent a lot of time uh, putting work into that bulletin, Um, so uh, please use it. Uh, Please take your phones out, take a look. Uh, You can, um, no, but really, there are actually um, some things in there that we actually don't mention in the service, Um, and so... Um, one of those things are the reflection quotes uh, on page one of the bulletin. And so if you go to metrophilly.org slash bulletin, uh, you'll see it right there. Um, and I'm pointing you there because there's a quote there from uh, Dr. Paul Tripp. And he's an amazing gospel-centered uh, preacher um, and writer who has blessed the church in amazing ways. Um, and he writes about worship in a very helpful way. He says, human beings, by their very nature, are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Worship is something that we're always doing. There's always something that is gripping us at the core of our being, something that's deeply treasured, and whatever it is that is at the center of our heart is what motivates who and how we are. You see, the average person might say, I don't worship anything, but nothing could really be further from the truth. All of us bow down before something. It could be a relationship. It could be a reputation, salary figure, or occupation, a distinction, a position. It's something that we long for, right? And so the issue has never been that we fail to be worshipers because we're all worshipers. The issue is the object of our worship. And the main reason why We're dissatisfied, anxious, restless. It's because God is not at the center of our worship. Something in this world has replaced him. Because deep down in our heart, we wonder, does God really love me? 
Is God really going to provide for me? Is God really good? I have three points for you today. First point, the invitation. It's a call to gather and worship the one true God. The second point is the warning. It's a cautionary tale of idolatry. And third, the promise. It's hope for the dissatisfied, anxious, and restless heart. This psalm was often used in the early church as a call and a guide uh, to worship. Uh, It was a reminder to orient and reorient constantly our hearts, our minds, our souls to the Lord, the one true God. It's similar to how our worship is structured today here. Um, Starting with a call to worship, it's kind of, hey, let's come and worship, let's Let's look to the Lord together, right? Let's sing together. And this was needed because people are constantly turning to other gods and needed to be reminded to turn to the one true God. This psalm can be broken up into two parts, and the first part is the invitation. It not only provides a blueprint for worship, Uh, But it's a call to the need and importance of community in obeying uh, and loving the Lord, which are essential in helping us to overcome the grip that idols have in our lives. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together real quick. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. You see, the psalm starts with an invitation to come, and it's a repeated invitation. It's a repeated call to come and praise. And this repetition, it serves as a poetic device uh, often used to express urgency and deep, deep emotion. It says, come, let us sing for joy. To who? To the Lord. Shout aloud to who? To the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. See, there's a call to praise and adore God with thanksgiving, not other gods. And you see, this is a call to set right the object of our worship and a call to turn from our idols. This is further emphasized in verses three to five. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Again, not another God. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. He is the true God, creator, and master of the universe. We're called to look up, look up to God, and turn away from the world. And so in a time when 
there were many gods, tribes and nations worshiping all different kinds of deities. These verses boldly, boldly proclaim from a small Israelite tribe that this God is the one true and only God, while also acknowledging just how big and mighty and powerful he is, the depths of the earth. He has seas in his hands. What an amazing picture of who this God is. It's unfathomable. It's, you can't picture what he, what he is. In verses six to seven, it says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Verses six to seven remind us that in response to humble ourselves in worship to the Lord, there's imagery here to bow down in worship, to let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And so you see the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe cares for us like a shepherd and we his sheep. And so there's a turn here where the psalm is going from upward reverence, looking up, looking up, looking up to personal intimacy a shepherd and his sheep, right? You see, this isn't just a God who reigns from a distance. He's a shepherd who walks with, he feeds, he protects. He intimately knows his sheep. This is a God who knows you by name. The God of gods, the King of kings, he knows you. He knows you. He knows all your failures. He knows all your shame. He knows all your suffering. And he invites you into a relationship with him. He wants to know you. Friends, this is not an invitation to just a singular moment it's not an invitation to an event. This isn't about a Sunday gathering. This is an invitation to you and a call to you to enter into a relationship with Jesus, which means that he would be above all other things in your life, that nothing else would be above him. It doesn't mean you can't have other things, right? In fact, most other things are good things, but they become an idol when they become the primary center of our worship. Dr. Tim Keller, uh, a renowned and respected pastor over in New York City, points out that the word worship comes from an old English word meaning worth-ship. And so worship is about seeing the worth of God. It's giving God all of the worth that he's due, but also receiving from him all the worth that we desire and crave and long after. That's what worship is. And so 
when we fail to see the worth of God in our lives, well, we'll ultimately turn to something else. Something else that will give us a sense of worth and that will become our God. That's going to become our idol. Unfortunately for us, uh, as the famous theologian John Calvin says, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us, from his mother's womb, experts in inventing idols. This is why it's so important for us to gather, to come together, to constantly be reminding one another to worship the one true God, but to also help us see blind spots, to call us out when we're going the wrong way. We need help, and we need a lot of it. The problem is, we don't want help. We don't want help. We don't want to hear it, because at the end of the day, we want what we want, right? Uh, And we want it on our terms. Today, uh, one of the biggest challenges that we face uh, is the love of self. It's not something that's really new, but it's an ideology um, uh, that is stronger uh, than it's ever been. Um, And it's everywhere. It's Uh, You look at your social media timelines, um, TV, movies, anywhere you look, you'll you'll see it. You'll catch the glimpses of it. It disguises, um, this love of self really just disguises itself uh, as self-love. It's what what I like to call kind of like um, hashtag do what makes you happy, right? Hashtag do what makes you happy, so I'm going to cut out all the people in my life that don't support what I want to do. It's hashtag do what makes you happy, so if I love you as you are, you should love me as I am. No questions asked. Let me do what I want to do. You see, we live in a time where when our pursuit of idols are celebrated, And so it makes them so much more enticing and harder to see as idols. But being the expert idolaters that we are, we seek a comfortable life with comfortable idols. Today we equate love and support and community with affirmation and approval. To love means to affirm how we live, to affirm how they live, to affirm how I live. And so, in essence, to love is to affirm idols. And so to love is to affirm sin. That is the prevailing ideology today. And you'll see it everywhere. I remember watching a recent interview um, of a successful social media Uh, entrepreneur, and um, she said something that really stuck out to me uh, while talking about those who had supported her um, on her journey to success. She said, 
thank you for making my idols comfortable. And I remember being a little taken aback and being like, did she really just say that? So are you allowed to say stuff like that today? For a moment, um, I was a little shocked. And, but then quickly some reality sank in. And I realized that oftentimes, that's what I want from my friends and those around me as well. I want people who make my idols comfortable. Isn't that what what we want? How many of us have become wary of our friends and family because rather than making our idols feel comfortable, they make them feel guilty. Rather than accepting them, they challenge them. How many of us have questioned God's love, his provision, his goodness, because rather than saying yes, he says no. Because rather than giving us what we wanted, he withheld it or he took it away. Does God love me? Will he provide for me? Is he good? These aren't just modern day questions, uh, but ones that have existed for a long time. And that brings us to our second point, which is the warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me. Though they had seen what I did, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The psalm quite suddenly shifts. It turns from a call to worship to a sharp warning to the listener, as well as a change in who's speaking. It's now God's voice who's talking. Today, today, the word today is significant because it emphasizes this very moment. It's a call to urgency. It's saying this is important right now. And it's followed by if you hear his voice. And that word if is, it's it's a scary word. If you hear his voice. So the worshipers singing and listening to this psalm would be asking themselves, will I hear? And there's actually a deeper meaning of the word hear. It actually connotes obedience. Will I obey? Will I obey the voice of God in my life? Meribah and Massa. They mean dispute and testing. And they appear in Exodus 17.7 in the story of the Israelites having come out of Egypt being resentful because there was no water for them in the wilderness. And so they went to um, 
uh, Moses and said, give us water. Who is this God? I don't know this God. There, the Israelites had hardened their hearts against the Lord, despite seeing the mighty work of God that had delivered them from Egypt. They asked, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, does God love us? Is God going to provide? Is God good? Sounds pretty familiar, right? Let's go back even further. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and the first humans God created, Adam and Eve, asked the same questions when they were tempted by the serpent to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They distrusted in God's goodness. They rebelled against his instructions and disobeyed, instead looking to define for themselves what is good and what is evil. Today, we are no different. We are the Israelites wandering in the desert, having been delivered from oppression with victory, only to harden our hearts and put God to the test at any sign of hardship in our life. We are Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, having received abundantly from our Creator, only to want more and define for ourselves what is good and what is evil, rather than trusting in what is good and what is evil. And the psalm kind of ends on a uh, rather uh, ominous kind of note. God says, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's a rebuke that reminds the heart, my heart, your heart, to take to heart the warning of hardening our hearts towards God. It's a warning of the punishment for those who harden their hearts and test the Lord with their unbelief. You see, rather than ending on a poetic note, which most psalms will do, this psalm kind of prioritizes urgency. It says, this is more important. This warning, take heed, listen up. Will you wake up? And so the rest that's mentioned here is so much more than just the promised land for the Israelites. The rest that's written here is about a much deeper rest. It's about sharing in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You see, this is a rest that's gonna be able to put an end to our striving, our working, and the curse of sin that we just can't shake from our heart. Just can't shed it, just can't stop. Church, the source of our unrest is unbelief. The source of our unrest is unbelief. And maybe that's something that we all have to wrestle with and come to grips with in reality. 
The reason why we work so hard and why our hearts are so restless, why this is one of the uh, most loneliest, one of the most anxious and most dissatisfied generations, is because we keep looking for a created object to be what only our Creator can be. This unbelief in God is counterbalanced by a belief in something else. It's a shift in worship, in what or whom we serve. Every day, every day. And so more often than not, um, we come to God to get the things of God and not really God himself. You know, we pray and we often try to do the right thing, but when these things don't kind of pay off, Sometimes we walk away from God, maybe not physically, but in our heart. We start doubting. We start questioning. Should I keep doing this? Is this worth it? We're experts at making gods of objects, of created things, and an object out of God. I'll say that one more time. We're experts at making gods of objects and an object of God. And this is why deep down we live with a deep dissatisfaction. It's why we work so hard. It's why we kneel at the feet of money, relationships, family, including our children, beauty, our careers, and so much more. At some point, our hearts have decided that God alone is not enough to make us happy. You see, the thing that we desire most, that we think about the most, will be where we spend most of our time and energy trying, either trying to get it or be consumed by it. For some of us, if we're lucky, we'll look up and wonder, how did it get this bad? For others of us, we're still blind to the idol that is gripping our heart. And yet others still will see it, but we're going to want it and we're going to choose it. We're going to live with it. In actuality, in all three of those cases, we choose it. We, ch- we choose. That's what we want in our, deep inside our heart. And we don't just all of a sudden fall into idolatry. We worship our way into it. And so we place it on the throne and we offer ourselves to it. Idols will never be able to satisfy our deepest desires because they themselves are created things, they're limited. They have a limit to what they can offer you. And until we change the object of our worship, our heart will always be restless. St. Augustine, a renowned uh, theologian, simply said, and you may have heard this, because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. So then, how do we enter this rest? How do we get this true rest? Well, we worship our way into idolatry 
And so the only answer then is to worship our way out of it. And this brings us to the last point, the promise. From the sin of Adam and Eve and the sins of the Israelites wandering in the desert to our sins today, God has promised redemption for all who believe through the perfect life of his son, Jesus. Jesus worshiped perfectly, meaning he saw all worth in God, his father, and he lived accordingly. He lived perfectly. Though he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus obeyed. He prayed, he sang, he worshiped. Though he knew there was no promised land for him, he didn't harden his heart, nor did he test the Lord. Jesus obeyed, he prayed, he sang, he worshiped. And on the cross, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, the greater Adam, the greater Israel, to experience the ultimate restlessness. Rather than experience the light of his father, he experienced the hardness of his heart, the wrath, the anger that we deserved. You see, the thing that Jesus valued most, his relationship with his father was cut off and he was forsaken. When Jesus cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was silence. He didn't hear his voice. Yet, even while experiencing the deepest agony that he could ever feel, Jesus was worshiping. He was quoting Psalm 22, a song. He was singing. He was leading us into worship. See, on the cross, Jesus labored so that we could enter into the cosmic rest of the Father in worship. His work became our work. His righteousness, now our righteousness. His perfect record, now our perfect record. And this is critical for us to understand, um, to believe, uh, to apply in our lives. See, because our hearts that desire approval and love, we have from our Heavenly Father because the perfect work and record of Jesus. So how do we know that God loves us, that he's going to provide for us, that he is good? To really know this is to truly believe that we are wretched, unlovable sinners and that God sent whom he loves most his beloved son to bear the wrath of his anger in our place so that he could be with us. This is true love. This is true forgiveness. Friends, this is all that we need. It's the end of finding our self-worth through any other means. It's the truth that we can fight our idol-making hearts with every day. And it's the truth that sets us free from hiding and relying on our own works. 
This gives us a supernatural power because this is a supernatural love. We can love our enemies. We can forgive our wrongdoers. We can give from the little we have. And we can rest because the work is finished. See, living into this truth is what transforms our lives. It transforms our relationships. And it changes communities, impacts cities. In our greatest hardships, when our deepest longings aren't met, we can sing and worship to the one true God because we can trust in the promise of the cross. We can stop trusting in the promises of the world. We can stop trusting in the promises of our idols. For many of us, we struggle to make this shift in our lives because we believe that the joy we're sacrificing, the joy that we're going to be sacrificing, is greater than the joy we'll be receiving. We tend to focus on what we're going to have to give up rather than looking at what we'll be receiving. We tend to, um, yeah, rather than what we're receiving. Um, And so isn't that funny? I think... uh, It's like being given a choice between steak and broccoli, but choosing broccoli every time. But in this case, it's even bigger. It's death and eternity, and we're choosing death over and over and over. Choosing something that's going to fail us over and over and over. And that's why we're tired. That's why we're restless. Is God not gracious? Is God not loving to sinners like us? Oftentimes we question God's love for us when we should really question our love for him. I think the more that we're able to do that on a daily basis, the more joy we'll have because God is unchanging and we're always changing. We'll see how lopsided this relationship is and yet how he keeps pursuing, chasing after your heart. So we need to ask ourselves every day. We need to have this call to worship every day, every moment, maybe hour by hour, depending where you're at. Who is at the altar of my worship today? Who is the king that I'm worshiping today? And so we need to be reminded of that together, individually, uh, in our church, in our community groups, And so as I close, I just want to say this. You can't address an idol that you don't acknowledge. And if you change nothing, well, nothing is going to change. Let's pray.